Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. So, Rebecca, did you get socks? We all got socks. Everybody got socks from Bombas, and they are stupid comfortable. I actually have something to break to you right now. What's that? I'm wearing a pair of your Bombas socks right now. You you have your own Bombas socks. <laughs> yeah, but mine were dirty, and you had a nice, fresh, clean pair sitting on your dresser. Is so that on? You got your, your boots on. Let me kick off this boot. Ta-da! Here's what I like about it. I'm wearing a short sock. Yeah. But what is this little thing called on the back that of it? That little tag? I think it's called the blister tab. Well, it's awesome. It keeps yeah. the, even the short socks up so you can wear them with sneakers. You can wear them with boots. It's actually like it's a like really- It's like a built-in shoehorn so you don't lose the sock over the heel. It's kind of like the pom-pom on the back of those old 70s tennis socks. Yeah, but it actually it does something. It doesn't stick out. <laughs> yeah, it actually does something. Who would think that like socks are that comfortable? I pulled them on and I got so confused, I tried to pull them on a second time. Because I was like, these just like fit. And they don't move. They don't move, yeah. That's perfect. They uh, have the extra long staple cotton, no toe seam, and the arch support. And this is why we love these socks, and we think you'll love them too. And Bombas will refund your money, no questions asked, if you don't. So go to bombas.com slash crime for 20% off your first order. That's bombas.com slash crime. Bombas, be better. And it's Bombas, right? I had the phone call with Jeff, and he told me I wasn't paying attention. I I think it's Bombas, Bomba, Bomb, not Bombas. <laughs> it's Bombas. Okay. I want to give a big shout out to all the listeners we heard from this week, especially all the listeners that sent in voice memos. We will be using some of those voice memos on this week's episode. It's be a good episode because of that. It's going to be a really good episode because of that. We did a little bit of rejiggering on our production schedule. We had planned a conversation about the podcast, Someone Knows Something, for this episode, but we're actually going to move that to a future episode or perhaps some additional content. That's just how it works. It's a little bit fluid around here. Yeah, it's such a big week, too. We can't wait to get into this. It is a big week. You can get in on all the latest news about the podcast by going to our website, crimewriterson.com, where you can sign up to get everything that you need to know about what's going on around here with our newsletter. And you can also help the podcast out by doing your shopping through the Amazon link at our website. Just go to crimewriterson.com and click on the Amazon link and then do all your Amazon shopping. doesn't cost you anything extra, but what you do buy... We get a little little taste of that, and that helps keep the podcast going. And speaking of what you buy, we like to make a little audio listicle now and then. And here are just a few of the items our listeners have purchased in the last week or so using the Amazon link at crimewriterson.com. Blood sugar support supplement. Advanced formula with gymnema and alpha-lipoic acid. 90 capsules, 100% money-back guarantee. 
soft clothes, quick release toilet seat, white, heavy duty. Winnie, the poo beverage napkins. I knew better. Women's floral bat wing sleeve chiffon beach loose blouse tunic tops, pattern 30. Medela pump and save breast milk bags. Oriental poppy, Princess Victoria Louise, papava oriental seeds. Fly me a, copyright, waterproof facial cleansing brush facial massager natural face cleanser for women and men. Stimulate collagen, pore minimizer, reveal a radi. Sarkis BN1647, Maggie oversized studded slouch beanie, beige one size. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be taking a big zoom out and talking about something we all know just a little bit about, and that is the arc of a good story. We'll be applying that lens to two topics, wrapping up Serial Season 2, as well as the now-complete first season of American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. We'll also answer a few of your questions, and we'll be doing it all with a very special guest. And joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Rebecca. You're wearing my socks, by the way. (laughs) And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Laura, for our listeners, can you give us the definitive pronunciation of your first name, please? Okay, I will do that. It is Laura. It is not Lara or Laura. <laughs> um, but I will tell you this, that my husband and I have been together 14 years and he still calls me Laura. So, um, you know, I don't take it too personally. Sorry about that. I'm from Long you Island. You can just call me Bricks. It. I don't know. I think Bricks is where we're going to go from now on. No, we're not. And also with us <laughs> is our favorite beach volleyball fan and professional naysayer, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. Thank you. And it's fi- pronounced Toby. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, our very special guest this week. You know his voice, you love it, and he can definitely do way more push-ups than you or any of us. It's retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps and judge advocate, a.k.a. military lawyer, and task and purpose podcast panelist, James Wyrick. Welcome back, Wyrick. Thank you very much, and thank you for calling me Wyrick. Some people out in the Twitter sphere get upset about that, but that's my preferred nomenclature. So we're not dissing you by uh, just calling you Wyrick. <laughs> By no means. All right, we're all going to get nicknames this podcast. You always call me Flynn. Yeah, I know. It's so badass. That's true. Yeah, it doesn't sound (laughs) I like it. It's not the same. Okay, let's start with the story arc. We all know that Serial Season 2 ended last week, and I'd like to start with the big question of story arc in Season 2. This season began with a very big promise. We'd hear Bo Bergdahl's version of the story, and then we'd zoom out and zoom out and zoom out to see a much larger picture. And I'd like to hear from each of you. We'll start with you, Kevin. Did Serial Season 2 fulfill that promise of such ambitious stories? Storytelling. Yes and no, in the sense that you heard things that you didn't know, no matter what you said about what you knew about Bo Bergdahl going in. And I know there's a lot of people in social media like, I don't care. I heard all I need to know about Bo Bergdahl, and I think it's X, Y, or Z. 
you have to admit that you learned a lot that you didn't know. They broke news from episode one. You never heard any of the, before any of the details of his captivity. And then all of this other stuff. I mean, the big, big question about, well, what were the, the consequences of him walking away from his post? We learned a lot of stuff, and it, it did zoom out. I think that we presumed it was going to zoom in a linear fashion because of you know the description of the, the book, that it was going to be small and then medium and then large, and it kind of moved in and out a little bit. But in the end, we learned a lot. But for people who were thinking, like, literally, this is going to be a zoom-zoom, it, it wasn't that. What about you, Wyrick? Do you think that Serial Season 2 fulfilled the narrative promise it made in the first episode? I think it definitely did. I think it should have done so a little earlier. To brag here for a second, I did some non-criminal stalking of the women of Serial. Oh, our listeners know. (laughs) (laughs) And was lucky enough to uh, share a drink with them up in Davis after one of their seminars. And I, I think I said this to him. We lost a lot of listeners at Task and Purpose because after about episode four, it's I think they stayed too much on Bergdahl. And then didn't zoom out early enough because I think the last three episodes were absolutely excellent and really gave that big picture. But I think they lost viewers because they didn't do that earlier. But I think they definitely uh, fulfilled their original intent. What about you, Toby? What do you think? I I guess they did. I agree with Wyrick in that I don't think it was organized in the best way. I went through and I, I kind of summarized each one of the episodes. I didn't listen to them again. I just got it off Wikipedia. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of all over the place. Like it doesn't follow like a logical kind of storytelling progression. So I think it probably got around and hit all the points. But I don't think it did it in a way that was either sort of the most compelling. I don't think it had the narrative momentum that it might have if they thought a little bit more about how they wanted to build it. It's still like when I go back and I look, I'm like, what were they thinking at the beginning they were going to accomplish? You know, because it seems kind of like it's not making an argument or telling like a straight narrative. It it sort of bounces around. I think we'll probably talk about the two-week thing later, but I think that kind of plays into it as well. Now, Toby, you did make that little chicken scratch summary of every episode of Serial Season 2 and every episode of Serial Season 1, just a couple of words for each episode. I actually took a a photo of your summary and I posted it on our website so our listeners can go check it out and see what that narrative looks like for themselves. Let me just say this. If Serial has a lot of digital game, we got a lot of chicken scratch game on our website, (laughs) but it is worth checking out because it's very interesting. We'll talk more about how they structure those episodes and put them together in a second. But first, I want to ask Laura, what do you think about the narrative promise of this season? Was it fulfilled, that promise that we heard Sarah make in that first episode? It was, but I guess I was hoping for like a much more significant sort of aha moment at the end. You know, to me, it zoomed out to kind of the bigger picture of the war, the military, how Bo played into this larger game that he was a part of. And also, you know, initiatives that were going on within the government. So that to me was kind of like, well, that was the Zoom. But there was just so many characters, side characters and different people that she interviewed that I find myself having a hard time keeping track of them and kind of hoping that this was all going to come together in a little bit more cohesive way at the end where I really I mean, I think it was more of a philosophical question that she was posing But she was doing it in a more, you know, dense way in terms of the way that the information was disseminated to us so that it wasn't really quite so clear where she was going. But when when it ended, I thought, 
yeah, okay, she's zoomed and 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 she's talking about this this bigger picture and where Bo falls into it. And it's really like we talked about last week, this sort of more philosophical question of forgiveness and and if people can reach that point. But I guess I was hoping that like a good mystery novel, it was going to all tie together at the end and I was going to be like, ah, didn't see that coming. But I don't really think that the narrative purpose was the Zoom. I think the Zoom was a hint at a way that the story would be told. I think the narrative promise is we start off with Bo Bergdahl's rescue and it's about what happened to him to get to this point and what we had to give up to it. That's the narrative promise, I believe. I think everybody's hung up on sort of, it was a great analogy and we thought this is how the story was going to be told. I don't think that's the actual promise. I want to pick up on something small that you just said, Laura, that just made me think for a second. You know, you talked about all the people that we had to kind of get to know and meet and keep straight. The episodes that really stick out for me, the the sort of one-off episodes that I remember really well are the ones with the two women in Tampa and, you know, hearing about the efforts to get Bo back. And I think that was number five, looking at Toby's uh, scratched list here. And also the ones where we heard from uh, Kim Harris, the uh, the family friend that Bo lived with. And what sticks out with those episodes is that they're women's voices. And so much of this story, so many of the interviews, so many of the subjects are men, which of course is necessary because those are the characters in the story. But it did sort of, for me, make it a little bit harder because every time she had to reintroduce somebody, she had to explain again who that person was, what their role was, why they knew what they knew. And then we heard another man's voice. And a lot of them sounded, you know, they didn't really have like a lot of diversity. It wasn't vocal separation. Of diversity of voices in the show. So that, that that's what's tr- tricky for me. But what I want to ask you, Laura, just as a follow-up, we did start the season. It was 11 episodes long with six episodes that focused on Bo. Bo's capture, Bo's captors, Bo's captivity, Bo's longer story about why he left, and then Bo's background. So really, if you can, if you include the Bo's background, that's seven episodes really focused on the Bo side of the story. Do you think it was front end loaded with too much Bo Bergdahl? I can see how some people would think that. For me, where I had a real superficial knowledge of this case going into it, it was effective for me to hear about his story as it was unfolding, as it was happening, what was happening to him, and to hear his voice telling about it. I think for people... Other people, you know, maybe they wanted a little bit more of kind of a signpost as to where we were going. But for me, it worked. Now, Wyrick, you mentioned that you lost listeners because there was so much bow at the beginning of this podcast. What were your listeners hoping they would hear toward the beginning? Yeah, I think the difference between season one and season two is in season one, none of us or relatively few in the United States knew anything about that story. You know, Anon and hey, we didn't know anybody. So it was you needed all that background and the workup. In season two, especially for military members, they knew Bo Bergdahl or they knew of the story and had a lot of preconceived notions and thoughts about him. And I think many of those persist to this day. So by taking so many episodes where they concentrated on Bo, we lost military listeners because they didn't get to those larger issues that Serial covered in the last three episodes until those final three episodes. So I think that was the big difference for military members. There was actually an interesting post on LinkedIn, of all places, not exactly where I go to read about my, you know most of my media commentary, about Serial not fulfilling its brand promise of the one story told week by week. We actually got a voice memo from a listener that had a similar theme. So let's just take a listen to that. 
And then, Toby, I'm going to come to you for your reaction to this. So let's just listen, and then um, you can respond. Hi, guys. My name is Lindsay, and I'm from Central California. I was wondering what you all were thinking about Sarah's choice to change Serial Season 2 to a bi-weekly format from the original weekly podcasts. Especially with the change coming in the middle of the season, I felt like it really hurt the flow. And when she made the announcement, I remember her saying something about new information that was coming to light that she would share later on. I never really felt like we got that big, explosive tidbit that just blew our minds. I also thought that with so many different players to keep track of and military systems and protocols that are so complicated, it was hard to stay engaged after a whole two weeks. I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts. Thanks for the podcast. It's a moment of pure delight when the notification pops up that your episode is dropped each week. A moment of pure delight. Did you guys all hear that? <laughs> all right. So, Toby, Toby, what do you think? Did uh, going biweekly mess with the storytelling in Serial Season 2? Yeah, I think it did. You know, I agree with Wyrick, but probably for a, a slightly different reason. You know, I, I think it would have been helpful to know why we care about this story or why this story is, like, explosive earlier and have some talk about the politics of it or the negotiations or just something to give a sense of, well, this just wasn't this guy who walked off and had this terrible experience. So I think that that was one thing. Another thing is that as opposed to season one, so many people in season two are sort of indirectly involved. So they're like commenting on things that happen. I mean, a lot of this is because, you know, she can't talk to Bo directly. But, you know, you're, you're hearing people comment on the situation, but they weren't necessarily players in that situation, which I think, again, is like constantly at this one little step of remove, whereas, you know, serial season one, it seemed like every, it was this very intimate thing and you're, they were constantly talking to people who are intimately involved in it. And then I think the final thing is, is that just the sheer waiting between two weeks on a season where, you know, I think most people agree, even the people who like season two, and, and I like season two, but it didn't have the same kind of narrative momentum. At least for me, there wasn't that same, like it would end and I'd be like, oh my God, seven more days until I get to hear the next one. This time it was 14 and it didn't seem like it was that much of a burden to wait. I don't know if it messed with the storytelling, but I think it, it messed with the audience experience. I think that if they were able to do it in a matter of 12 weeks versus I think it ended up being like 20 weeks, that it still would be the same story. You know, maybe they bought themselves more time for production and getting more people in, but essentially be the same. And, and you know, Serial's other promise is that it's experimental because it's in real time. I mean, you think about the very last episode here where the Coast Guard guys come in and they said, oh, yeah, we heard this and now we're responding and it's changing the narrative or at least the, uh, some of the ways we understand of, about the story. Serial is an experiment in first draft storytelling. So when you go back, you might say, well, if I could do that all again, I would have rearranged things. And I think that there was so much that happened and, and breaking them up into big blocks of episodes where each episode was sort of a big thing. If this were a book, I'd say that it would have been written where a lot of the stuff was happening parallel so that you're getting context and you're getting not only Bo's story and his side of things, but also at the same time, you know, a couple pages later, you're getting what's happening with the unit and then back to Bo, and then meanwhile back in Tampa, and breaking them into big chunks, I think, ma made it hard to get the context and the value of that, which we didn't get until the end of the season. Was there anything towards the end of this season that seemed to you to be both close to real-time reporting and of enough significance to the story 
that it made sense to break up the momentum in that way? I couldn't, you know, without sitting in on their story meetings and knowing what they already had when episode one dropped versus what they were able to get because of the extra time, I can't say. I'll actually tell you, I think that was a flaw because I think that Sarah told us why they were changing the schedule and then never told us this is why we changed the schedule. You know, we got this person because, you know, I really think that would have helped. I don't know. I think that was kind of a missing piece because there is another part of the experiment of Serial is the transparency. And I am reporting the story and this is what's happening right now. And that was missing for me. I think the two week schedule change, we got that transparency and then it disappeared and we never heard about it again. I want to talk about one other aspect that has, I think, raised some hackles and then maybe kind of flip it a little bit rather than being critical. You know, we've all reported on and written written stories with central characters as part of our work. We've heard a lot about Bo's sort of whether or not he's relatable because we're not hearing the first person interviews. And we also know that Sarah has a tremendous skill in humanizing characters. If you think back to season one um, and the way that we sort of felt about certain people in that series. Wyrick, who do you think were the most human and relatable and fleshed out characters that we got to know in serial season two? Who are the ones that stick out for you? I think Sarah was still able to do a good job with Bo. I think he was fleshed out well. The problem I think you had with season two is there wasn't really characters other than him that I cared about that much. A little bit with Wolf, but other than that, there were only a number of characters that told the story help tell Bo's story, but they weren't individuals that you also cared about, if that makes sense. That makes sense. What about you, Laura? I think that Kim Harrison, to me, was a character that you really felt like you knew her. You could empathize with her point of view and how she got involved with trying to help Bo right off from the beginning when she somehow contacted the Taliban. And also, it was a small character, but it was a character that I felt like, I think, I'm looking at characters that seem, you know, sincere to me, characters that I felt like I could relate to where they were coming from. The guy that worked in Tampa that we I don't think we knew his name, the one that kind of went through, was it Facebook and helped Bo's parents? Mm -hmm. I felt like he was a very compelling character and we didn't hear a lot from him, but I felt like he was like a very sincere and honest character. Secret no name guy number one, that guy? Yeah, the guy who was like (laughs) giving him like, well, if it was me, I would do this, that guy. Yeah. But Kim Harrison, I think just because she also gave us a real window into somebody that knew Bo, because we were one step removed. And I think that she really illustrated for those of us that were listening, kind of A little bit more about his personality and some of the odd things he was doing that when you kind of heard more about his suspected diagnosis, it it kind of put it more into perspective. What about you, Kevin? Any characters stick out for you? You know, it's funny. Until you mention that, I can't say really that there were. What about Serial Season 1? Any characters stick out for you? Well, I mean, you had Anon and you had Jay and you had Gutierrez and... Deidre and Ray. Deidre and you had Rabia. (laughs) And, you know, you kind of knew sort of all of them. And throughout Season 2, you did hear a lot of really interesting people. And if it weren't for his charisma, the charisma of Sergeant Wolf, he probably just would have been another voice. I mean, some of the the soldiers in his unit said this and that and the other thing, and they were really interesting. But you don't remember any of their names, or you can really say, that's the guy who has this kind of personality. Right, right. The only real one really is Bo. And I point this out. Sarah always referred to him as Bo and not Bergdahl. Right. And why do you think that is? That's his name. What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> but right, I mean, doesn't that sort of more, if if she just referred to him as Bergdahl throughout, I think that it would make him seem more like a soldier or whatever. she did that with everybody. She, she did that with everybody. Ken Wolf, Ken. Ken, right. And she did that in the first season. But by referring to him, him as Bo versus referring to him as Bergdahl, as 
he would be referred to in a straight news story. I think she was attempting to, as she does with all characters, I don't think this is unfair, to humanize this person and to get you to have some sort of connection. And I was really surprised that even after the two episodes about the horrible conditions of his captivity, that so many people remain unmoved by that. Toby, do you have a, a favorite character from this season of Serial before we move on? I can't remember his name. The guy who was also a uh, top guy who's talking with Wolf, not with him, but right after him last time, who... Lieutenant Colonel Paul Edgar. Yeah. He, he's the one who said that the whole country signs up for war. Yeah. But he wasn't, you know, it's these people who say kind of interesting things, but as characters... There was just like a real disconnect. I, I kind of felt like on season one, everybody you could say, oh, well, that was, you know, Adnan's friend. Oh, that was who who owned the apartment that Adnan went to. Kathy, oh, Kathy. that's But all these people are like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's another soldier. And he might have been in Bo's platoon or he might not have been. He might just have like heard about stuff. I just never felt like you could connect with characters. And I, I also wanted to kind of respond to what Kevin was, was saying and, and you were talking about. Because I think it's a decision that at least I think about in my writing is, are you going to refer to everybody by their last name or are you going to refer to them by their first name? Mm -hmm. It does have implications with the way people read it and I think also hear it. Mm -hmm. And I found mm -hmm. absolutely my, my first manuscript, I looked at it and without being intentional about it, I had all the male characters were by their last name and all the female characters were by their first name. That's because you're chivalrous. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or chauvinistic. Or chauvinistic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's both. Hey, toots. All right. So, Wyrick, I'm going to play another listener voicemail. And even though this listener does not address you directly in the voicemail, I'm sorry he doesn't do that because he probably didn't know you were going to be on this week. I'd like you to respond to it. This one is about a transformation that took place in the story. I'm just going to play it and then um, I'm going to come to you when we're, when we're done listening to it. G'day, guys. It's uh, John here from Sydney. Love the podcast, love the way you pull the whole thing together. Toby, thanks for cynicism. Lara, thanks, Laura, Lara, for the intellect. <laughs> Kevin, thanks for the uh, sometimes double entendres. And Rebecca, thank you so much for being professional enough to keep all this group together, this disparate group together, and your wonderful laugh. Really appreciate it. The key question I have for you, though, is from episode one in series two to episode 11, the thing that struck me most of all was how the change occurred between some of those individuals who were in Bo's platoon interviewed early and their view that they would have shot him and killed him and whatever, whether that was bravado or not, and Ken Wolfe, you know, the scary Ken Wolfe would have to stand between them. And at the end they said, we understand. Some of them, like Austin and Zach at the end, said, you know what, that could have been us. So my question then is, to what extent is that the biggest change from episode one to episode 11 for you? You know, is that what changed for you? Because that's what changed for me in the way the thing was put together. Now, Wyrick, you podcast with a guy who served in Bo Bergdahl's platoon. So what do you think about what John had to say? Was that the biggest change that took place in the podcast? And, and if not, what do you think was the biggest change? Well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm not sure why John didn't mention me. I'm huge <laughs> in Sydney. I'm, no, I'm known as the Yahoo Sirius of Sydney. But I will say that that's a fantastic question. I find it also fascinating because were there two separate interviews? You know, for example, did Sarah interview them once and then come back to them? Or were those parts of one interview? 
I'm guessing, but I think Ken Wolf's was one interview. I think and so I, too, yeah. yeah. And I think it's really telling that they were able to say, hey, this is how I felt at the time. And it's both an insight into the soldiers, how they felt. And I think it also is an insight into Bo. I think one of his biggest problems is his inability to understand hyperbole. You know, he takes everything too literally. And that those soldiers said, I would have shot him myself. They don't really mean that. But they're using hyperbole to get across their point. And then that is a huge transformation that, for example, Sergeant Wolf, he says at the end, yeah, maybe I'd, I'd just say, you know, think about it twice next time before you do anything. You know, you can tell that he has – he cares for Bo. But he just wants to get across the seriousness of the situation. So I think absolutely that that was one of the biggest transformations of the entire season. And it was interesting to still see some people that never transformed, but it seemed like a large portion of them did. That they came to a different way of thinking about Bo after having some distance from the event. I think that John is really on to something that those two guys really, for me... I think the story would have been interesting told from their point of view, frankly. That's how interesting I thought that transformation was. Speaking about that and sort of what could have been done differently, the season did tackle so much information, tried to answer at least some questions about Bo Bergdahl's story, but was there some information or some part of the story that you were really hoping that we'd get in Serial Season 2 that we didn't get? Well, you know, I really wanted to know more about the super secret girlfriend of Bo. But, you um, have. You're, you're really stuck <laughs> I, on that. I am. I'm fixated. Like, who would date Bo Bergdahl? I want to know. I want information. Um, Someone who likes a guy who smokes a pipe. I know. But it's just, it's fascinating to me. But for me, I think if there had been kind of like a core group of main characters, people that I could have been invested in week to week, there was just so many characters. Like you were saying, it was like an episode of Frontline. It was like a news, you know, very in-depth news report. And it was good. And it taught me something and I learned something. But I think if I had somebody that I was more invested in following week to week, it would have had that, you know, sort of narrative draw for me that wasn't quite there this time. What about you, Toby? Any information or parts of the story that you would have liked Sarah Koenig to slip into this season of Serial? Well, I think the obvious thing is it would have been great if she'd been able to talk to Bo. But the one episode that I kind of felt like she was just missing a whole part of it was when she was talking about the politics involved. And she was mostly talking about how it was screwed up. And she didn't really have anybody who could give a rationale for why they were doing what they were doing. So I, I kind of felt that that was sort of an obvious miss. What about you, Wyrick? You have a very interesting perspective here. You come at this from the military justice side. You come at this from really the military side. And what part of the story did you think was missing if there was a part missing? This is what's missing. We didn't get to the court martial yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I, not to spoil anything for the second half of this podcast, but if we were talking about the people versus O.J. Simpson and it stopped at episode eight, we don't know if Bo Bergdahl is going to be convicted or acquitted. I think that's what's missing. And I think that was maybe a question of why did Serial come out when it did, you know, knowing that there's not going to be that finality, that extraordinarily tense moment where you find out if someone is convicted or acquitted of a crime. 
So I think that's what's missing. Well, I want to play one final listener voicemail about this season of Serial because I think she has a very interesting counterpoint to everything that we've just been talking about. So I'm just going to play this and then we will uh, answer her question. Hi, crime writers. This is Lillian from California. I just finished listening to the season two finale of Serial and was left with so much to think about and feeling very sad. Not sad for Bo Bergdahl necessarily, but rather for the nature of the human condition and the meat grinder we call war. What has really got me thinking is the way Sarah Koenig zoomed out to the meta picture. And for me, that meta picture is something that we humans are generally uncomfortable with, and that is ambiguity. If we can't live with and be comfortable with ambiguity, we ultimately end up with black and white thinking and the need for blame and revenge. There's no place for ambiguity in the military. As a teacher, I've spent years encouraging students to think critically and learn to be comfortable with ambiguity. Imagine what the world would be like if we could do that. To me, that is the message of season two. Is ambiguity the point? And is the fact that the military can't be ambiguous and the story has so much ambiguity in it the point? What do you think of uh, Lillian's comment there, Wyrick? Her comment is excellent. I think more so than the military, criminal law can't deal with ambiguity. And I've said this before, I think that if we really want to get to the truth of what happened in the Bergdahl case, we should approach this as the South Africans did at the end of apartheid, where they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. They were non-criminal. They were hearings about what had occurred because the way, especially the way Lieutenant General Flynn says, absolutely, people died looking for Bo Bergdahl, and then he gives – a hypothetical that never occurred, people are going to expect that Bo Bergdahl is going to be convicted and that part of the sentencing is going to be people died looking for him. I predict that they may not even try to show that in the court-martial in the sentencing phase, and there's no way it's going to be very difficult for them to prove that. Now, Wyrick, you just said that Flynn gave a hypothetical that didn't occur. So your your position is that he believes that it occurred, but he wasn't able to show any proof that it occurred. Is that what you were saying? I don't really understand why he was doing the interview. He sounded so upset by even being asked the question. Right. And then he just gives this conclusory answer about, listen, I know that people died. I mean, I would love to cross-examine him after this just because the way he says that, he's like, well, if there's a soldier walking down the road and he steps in an IED looking for Bergdahl, I connect those dots. Except those dots don't exist, General, so would you like to rephrase your answer? If he's so positive that somebody died looking for Bergdahl, a name would be helpful. Who died? Right. Kevin, what were you going to say? Well, first of all, Rebecca's never met a Flynn that she couldn't disagree with. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. It's, you know, they say, well, it doesn't matter whether on July 1st or July 2nd, you know, he's responsible for everything that happened weeks, months later, every casualty, because this got moved there and that got moved there. And it's fallacious thinking. It's a fallacy. And it's called hypothesis contrary to fact. He says, you can't say that. You can't know that. Because of the dust one, there was one fewer tank that was here or this was moved there. It's contrary to fact. You can't prove it. You can feel it and believe it, but you can't know it. 
Laura, do you have any thoughts about ambiguity and whether or not that is a central theme here in this uh, season of Serial? I do. You know, and I think this is something I've been kind of thinking about since the beginning, that this is something that is more gray than black and white. And that was, you know, like people coming into this had very strong opinions about Bo on one side or the other. And this is showing us that it's not black and white and it is gray. And it reminds me of, you know, when I when I first started out right after college, I was a you know police reporter. And I remember early stories I wrote as a police reporter and it was very black and white. And I'd be like, the police told me this happened and I'd write it down and report it. And, you know, and then I went to be a defense investigator. And I was like, hmm, there's a lot more going on here than just this person did this. There's reasons why this person did this. And I think that's what this season of Serial is trying to sort of bring to light. And at the same time, sort of challenging people's opinions in that area and kind of pushing them out of their comfort zone to think about whether once they know that, they can change how they feel about something. What about you, Toby? What do you think about ambiguity as a central theme? Does that ring true for you? Uh, I've got mixed feelings about it. Uh, <laughs> Are you feeling He's ambiguous? ambiguous? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think it, I think it's a good point. Or maybe not. You know, if, or, yeah, you know I can see both sides. Uh, I'd like to hear why we're cross-examining you, Toby. (laughs) So my actual answer is, it's interesting, and I hadn't really thought about it in quite that way. And I think if she'd been a little bit more clear about taking a story that is ambiguous, but is sort of ambiguous within this frame of black and white and sort of the conflict there, I think that would have been kind of an interesting take if she had been able to make that a little bit more explicit. You know, I wish she'd talked to Sarah before the the season started because I, I think that would have been a pretty interesting thing for her to have explored a little more explicitly rather than people having to sort of implicitly kind of understand that maybe that's what she was after. Well, I would like to consider this the end of our official discussion about Serial Season 2. I'm sure we'll touch on aspects of the story in the future, but this was a really, really sort of in-depth, big look at the season as a whole. So I'd like to use this moment in the episode instead of waiting till the end. Let's grade this season right now. I'm going to come to each of you. Wyrick, you know, this is something that we do here on the show. We usually give each episode a grade, but this time we're going to give the entirety of Serial Season 2 a grade. The way that we do it is we use a letter grade, and then you give a brief 20 to 30 second explanation of why you gave it the grade you did. Laura, I'm going to come to you first. Serial Season 2, what is your letter grade, and why are you assigning this season of Serial that grade? Go ahead, Laura. Okay, I'm going to go with a B plus. You know, I didn't love it like I love season one, but it was a different type of story. And I think that's what we need to remember. It's a different type of story. But at the same time, it really took an issue and broke it down and presented it in such a way that I did leave feeling differently than I did when I started. So I gave B plus. What about you, Kevin? Even though I graded each individual episode very high, as a season, I'm going to give it a B. It seems like saying the sum is less than the parts. It's because I think that it was more like a quilt or a patchwork of things that didn't quite fit together, you know, they were fine individually, but there was, it was basically a lot of parallel commentary, and there weren't these things that were interconnecting. The only thing was Bo, and we didn't hear Bo all the time. You know, if you think about season one, we heard Adnan, and I think like every episode, whether it was really focused on him or not. And there's obviously a lot of audience disappointment with season two, A, because it's not season one, B, because it's not another murder mystery of some kind, C, because it's Bo Bergdahl and, you know, he's persona non grata. 
However, I still think it was a great effort in investigative journalism, and it's um, not necessarily great storytelling, but it's great journalism. Nonetheless, I give it a B. What about you, Toby? What's your grade of Serial Season 2, and why? I, I think Kevin nailed it in sort of the whole is less than the sum of the parts. I felt like some of the individual episodes were more compelling as sort of, you know, one-off, hour-long pieces. And then when they are stitched together, it certainly was not as coherent and cohesive as season one was. So if season one was like an A, I, w- I would say this is like a C plus. All right, Wyrick, pressure's on. What grade do you give Serial season two and why? It's an A minus, otherwise a 9.1278. God <laughs> <laughs> damn military guy. So precise. <laughs> and the reason is I would have rearranged the order of the episodes, but I think overall it was a tremendous success in taking the story of Bo Bergdahl and looking at that and blowing it out to seeing this is what happens when a country decides to go to war for 15 years. And we should all think about that. Now, I'm going to say if I had heard what Wyrick just said explicitly, the series would have gotten a higher grade for me. But I'm also like in B plus range because I would rather have Wyrick helped inform what Sarah told us is the reason why we should care so much, because that is exactly why we should care so much. I think there should have been, you know, more parallel stuff. More parallel stuff, more transparency, more with the people who were affected by this. An exploration, I think, would have been very interesting of the people who hate Bergdahl and can't move from that opinion, no matter what evidence they're given. She didn't give enough evidence that we need to care early on. I think that would have been really interesting. I'd like to ask Wyrick, do you think that Bo Bergdahl will get a dishonorable discharge? Ahem. <laughs> no, he will not get oh, I've been it. waiting a month to use that with an ahem. <laughs> I, I don't How about a bad get... conduct discharge? Ahem. I no? don't think he'll get a discharge of any type. I think that he'll probably get convicted of at least a short-term AWOL. I see him doing a nominal amount of time, maybe 60, 30, or 60 days in the brig, if that. And I think his defense counsel will be good at explaining that either a bad conduct or a dishonorable discharge will so impede his ability to get uh, treatment from the VA that it won't be awarded. You know, I saw something completely ridiculous. Okay. Which you see it all the time, which is I'm on the highway and there's a guy with a mattress on the roof (laughs) and he's got like one hand out the the driver's side window like holding it in place as if it's not going to blow away right right this is like the dumbest thing you can do it is you know which is why I think that Casper mattresses are the way to go first of all don't look like a fool because I I, eventually it was going to blow off and kill somebody behind him I absolutely am sure of that right so Wyrick what do you think of Kevin's transition into this ad just now (laughs) I think there's actually one dumber thing you can do and that's be the guy that lays on top of the mattress and <laughs> to hold it when, down. Yeah, and he holds it down, and that's not enough weight to hold it down. And then you're flipped into the middle lane of a highway. I think Wyrick's right with you here on this transition into this ad. So go ahead, Kevin. Tell us more about why we should uh, buy a Casper mattress. Well, our sponsor today is Casper Mattresses. They are obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. All made in America, except I think there's one fat Canadian guy that sits on the box so that the mattress will fit in there. Oh, yeah, there is. There just has the to one, be. Just the one guy. And, of course, they're all great Americans, built, making a great American product. And now you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash crime and using code word 
Prime. These are mattresses that are made of a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam, so you know they're just right when you lie down. I think that we can attest to the fact that Casper Mattress is comfortable because we cannot get Henry, my son, out of his bed in the morning. He's <laughs> in Casper Mattress. Oh, yeah. There's a 14-year-old boy that won't come out of his bedroom I know. when you call it's him. It's a miracle. It's what, a miracle. That's never happened before. <laughs> it's never happened before. Do we have any other sponsors, Kevin? I'm not done with this one, Rebecca. <laughs> okay. I've got more to read. All right, go ahead. So you don't have to drive it on the on the roof of your car. Casper will send the mattress directly to your house, all vacuum-packed, open it up, sleep on it for 100 days. Uh, you don't have to just, like, roll around on it and on the on the, the department store floor for a couple of minutes. You're going to be sleeping on this for one-third of your life. Try it for 100 days. If you're not happy, they'll pick it up. So get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash crime and using code CRIME. Terms and conditions apply. And please do use that code if you buy a mattress because then Casper will know that you heard about it right here. What else, Kevin? You know what was was the other second like stupid thing I saw? I don't know. I, it, it was the line at the post office. <laughs> I don't know why I had to go to the post office. It was like the most soul-sucking thing. Right, guys? I mean, are you with me on this? Like when you go to the post office, like you would rather be anywhere else? Well, Did you stay in that line, Kevin? I had to stay in that line. You know that there was like a whole other place where some guy could have come and started taking more people. Instead of just one clerk at the counter, there was room for a couple of more. Yeah. And I knew they were back there. So any of you guys with your kids, have you seen that movie Zootopia? No. Where the DMV is run by sloths? (laughs) (laughs) The the DMV is a step up. This is what it reminds me of. (laughs) The DMV is a big step up from the post office. Listen, I love our little tiny small town local post office, I'm not going to lie, but... When I go to a bigger post office, like the one in the town in which we work, it is like every transaction. It's the first time that person has ever done that transaction. <laughs> no, I, I like it when there's Rebecca. a huge line and somebody wanders out from the back and kind of looks around <laughs> and, and then wanders back again. <laughs> it's just like, wow, it looks like a pretty long line. Good thing I have a really long lunch. So is there a solution for this problem? Yeah, Kevin? the solution is stamps.com. Yes. You can, you can do That's a grown-up sponsor. Anything you can do at the post office right now you can do from your desk with stamps. Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. And it's always like the weird things. Like you're trying to, you know, figure out like if you're sending a package. That's the reason you go to the post office is because you don't want to guess about like how many stamps to put on there. Right. Because you're afraid you're going to put too few on or you put too many. And that's the whole reason why you're, you're standing behind some old lady who wants to, you know, ship all these packages Back to, to QBC. Grand- yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I tell you one thing you can do with with stamps.com is you can also, Rebecca, print return labels. Nice. And we're going to need that because uh, you return a lot of stuff. I so, do. So we're really excited that uh, we have stamps.com. And uh, right now, sign up for stamps.com using promo code CRIMEWRITERS for this special offer, a four-week trial plus $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So we're going to start shipping some stuff, Rebecca. I can't wait. Drugs? <laughs> <laughs> can, can Laura print a stamp with Stampy on it? She can. I think she Her can. Her cat Stampy, yeah. Stampy the Stamp. Well, you can't do Stampy exactly, but, uh, you know, you can run those. I think sta- you can make custom stamps on the stamps.com. We can check. Oh, really? We'll check, oh. and we'll edit it out if we can That's what do. they say on Reply All. I'm just I, saying. I, I got a, I got a <laughs> letter from Christmas somebody with a stamp are... with their kid's face on it. But Christmas cards next year are going to be good. One other thing that stamps.com won't do, that the post office does do, it won't drive the front wheel of its car across your flower bed the way that our post office Son of a bitch, does. yeah. <laughs> and what are we 
that's the next thing we got to figure out. We have to get landscapers.com to okay, help so us out. Okay, so how can people get stamps.com? Go ahead. All right, you go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the home page, and that's where you type in Crime Writers. So that's a go to stamps.com, enter Crime Writers. This is just a four-week trial offer. We really want to get people to try stamps.com. This is great if you have a small business or maybe you have a little cottage industry. You make jewelry or you're, you're making pottery. You sell stuff on Etsy. You're selling stuff on Etsy. Why go to the post office for that? Do it right from uh, your house with stamps.com. All right. Let's now move on, shall we? Nice job, Kevin. You sounded very, very official just now. And that was a very big boy sponsor I love the that folks. we got. I had a nice conversation with the folks at stamps.com. They love our podcast and, <laughs> and they, you know, for whatever reason, they really want us selling stamps. So, I really want to talk about, for the second half of our podcast, the story arc of another story that all of us have been following, except, Wyrick, I understand that you only watched the whole season of The People vs. O.J. Simpson just for the taping of this podcast episode? Yes, I did. I binge-watched <laughs> over the last about 18 hours, and or maybe a little longer than that, and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I went to Southern Cal as an undergrad, so I was at USC during the O.J. Simpson trial, so it made me nostalgic for my undergraduate time and my time in Los Angeles. And you also have another somewhat personal connection to O.J. Simpson and the O.J. Simpson case, right? Well, I have two small anecdotes. One was right before the murders, I was out at a bar with my roommate, and actually my roommate and his daughters listened to Crime Writers On. Yeah. And his, his daughters are my goddaughters, and they wanted to know why you don't call me Uncle Jimbo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Uncle Wyrick. Shut up. <laughs> right. So I give a shout out to all of my godchildren. But we shared a drink with OJ. I mean, we both went to Get USC. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Oh, no. Swear to God. And he was, <laughs> he was surrounded by probably four beautiful women. He couldn't have been more magnetic. I mean, he just, he dominated the room and couldn't have been more fun. I mean, we're, we're undergrads. He's been out of the NFL by that time for almost 20 years. And we say, OJ, can we buy you a drink? He said, oh, absolutely. Brought us up to the bar. Couldn't have been a nicer guy. Yeah, he could have been a nicer guy. He Wyrick. could have been. I hate, to, <laughs> <laughs> hate to break it to you. Dad. Did he show you his giant statue? <laughs> no, no, yeah, that got that got stolen from USC. Also, oh. remember we saw that little scene of the juror who had that photo of himself, like at the rental car place. <laughs> with, rental car. Yeah, it sort of lends a little more credence to that kind of anecdote being true. If he was in fact that gregarious when he met people. And I'll tell you. So the second small anecdote: when the verdict came out. I was in a probably 400 person lecture. The professor could see that I was wearing headphones and, and had my Walkman on. So he actually said, okay, fine, I'll stop my lecture. And he pointed at me and I pretended to listen. And then I said, oh my God, he's just stabbed Furman. And of course that didn't happen. <laughs> but I got, to, I got to announce to about 450 people in a lecture hall that he was acquitted. All right. Well, I really want to talk about sort of the, this season as a whole, because I think it was a very interesting series. And when we first started talking about it, Laura, the first thing we talked about was the casting. And we wondered how certain casting choices, namely John Travolta as Robert Shapiro and Ross from Friends as Robert Kardashian, uh, would affect 
the ability of the show to tell a story. So I want to start with you, Laura, now that it's all over. What did you think of the cast overall? And did anyone's performance distract you in the end, looking at the totality of the series from your enjoyment of it? Well, you know, I, I think Cuba Gooding Jr. as OJ, I got used to it, but it really didn't seem like OJ to me. You know, I think everybody else, I, I think Marsha Clark, I think that was definitely a fantastic role. It was well Sarah cast. Paulson, yep. Yeah, that really carried pretty much the series for me. What about you, Toby? What did you think of the cast overall now that we're looking back on the series as a whole? You know, I think for the most part, it was good. I hate to go back to the Cuba Gooding thing, but, you know, scenes where he's sort of dwarfed by Robert Kardashian and Robert Shapiro, there's something about that that seemed to take away from part of the trial was that OJ was huge, you know, this stud athlete, perhaps the best-known African-American athlete in the country, maybe, except for Muhammad Ali. And so that was part of it. The other thing I thought that they didn't do a good job with at all was a guy who played Mark Furman. At least in my memory, he was a much more off-putting character, Mm -hmm. just seeing him on the stand. I was actually pretty soon after that, you know, within a year, I was on a I was on a jury in uh, Washington, D.C., and there was a cop who came up who had just the same attitude, the sort of head tilted back a little bit, kind of cocky, kind of running through the facts like he was kind of a badass. And you could just feel it in the jury, which was largely African-American. And it was tense. You know, you could just tell us like that is every cop who just hassles people. Mm-hmm. I felt like that came across like I didn't follow the OJ thing too closely, but I remember seeing Mark Furman and being like, that guy is like the the cop you do not want pulling you over. And as it turns out, a white supremacist as well. Bonus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now a commentator for Fox News, which is very interesting. A lot of people are now just it's very easy to forget. I think, you know, Mark, is that where we knew you Ma- from? No, Mark Furman yeah. also worked on the um, he wrote the book about this Martha Skakel murder, the, yeah. the Kennedy murder. And yeah. uh, and did I he think do something with John Bonet. He I think he did. He got into being a crime, true crime writer, a true crime writer. And I think that he did do a decent job sort of rehabilitating his reputation, I think, for especially people who aren't familiar with the case, but this has now brought the full Furman back into the public sphere, which is really, really interesting to watch. So we're not the, <laughs> the most hated true crime We're not the most okay, hated good, 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 anymore. Yeah. So Kevin, anyway. uh, what, do you, what did you think of the casting? How did it affect the telling of the story? Well, I think the only like weak part was actually the executive producer, John Travolta, as Robert Shapiro. His performance was just kind of weird. And again, I thought he was like channeling like Dr. Evil in the first like two episodes. Episodes. I still and it was liked like, it. Yeah, did you know? <laughs> chief is a dear friend of mine, and he would rub his fingers a little weird. But I think the whole thing, it got every episode, it got stronger and stronger as it went along. The performances got better. I thought the lesser known actors that had the bigger parts. You know, we're really outshining the bigger names. But the bigger names came along as things progressed. I mean, uh, Nathan Lane started doing really well. I thought Cuba Gooding Jr. did pretty good considering that, he, that his character really is a spectator for most of it. But Sterling K. Brown oh as, God. as Darden was so great. And we, we've talked about Sarah Paulson. I mean, excellent. But he was so good. For, he made the character both likable and very human. And in the penultimate episode, when he has his, his meltdown in court after the tape ruling, and you know he's yelling at Conquer, and then he yells at the judge. And when he says, this case is a circus, the way he says the word circus, 
with such pleading and astonishment sends chills down my spine. I watched it a second time. It was the most amazing piece of acting. I'm just disappointed I'm not going to see him anymore. I think you are probably going to see him in other things, though. Yeah, right, yes. I thought the scene of him in the elevator confronting Marsha Clark finally was so strong with him slamming the briefcase on the ground and just really, as great. You so, wanted a black face, not a black voice. Did you guys see that article where, I don't know if he wrote it, but it was at least talking to this guy who was the court sketch artist? No. Why did they need a sketch artist for that mo- the televised? <laughs> well, he did not go into that question, but they did ask him about the portrayal of different people. One of the things he said was that OJ was like way cockier than you saw him on The People versus OJ and that he would be like flirting with women, like had a swagger about him. And then he said Darden was like a lot nerdier hmm. than he comes across in uh, People versus OJ. He's, he said, you know, he was just uh, sort of more uncomfortable in his own skin type, huh. which is hard to imagine given <laughs> how it seemed in the miniseries. Uh, so, Wyrick, what about you? What were your reactions to the casting? I know that one cast member in particular has kind of gotten under your skin in a not so great way, right? Yeah, I'll save that for a second. Because <laughs> <laughs> the mm-hmm. first one was Nathan Lane as Flea Bailey. But uh, that was <laughs> Flea <laughs> Bailey. Because I that- can only think of Nathan Lane in the birdcage. But by the end, he really grew on me, and I thought of him just as Flea Bailey. Is that like what lawyers call F. Lee Bailey in private, Flea Bailey? Well, once he got disbarred, yeah, he's not he's not quite as awesome as he was. Gotcha. But Ross Geller playing <laughs> Rob Kardashian, <laughs> I would have rather have seen SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> because either Robert Kardashian is maybe the worst lawyer to ever go to law school because he keeps having this surprised look on his face like, what? (laughs) They're going to ask you questions? The police might want to ask you questions? Like, yes, you fool. And then he's also on the case, but they would cut to him and he's like thinking in his brain, like, is it possible that OJ did this? Like, yeah, but lawyers don't think about that. You're there to defend OJ. You're not going like, hey, you know what, Johnny? I think OJ might have done it like that's just foolish i think it was a good character in the sense that he's the one that has sort of this arc from believing to not believing and you really you know feel for him but i think anybody noticed that in the end of the last one of the the last scenes he's wearing glasses as if he's seeing the truth for the first time yeah yeah i think that what ryrick's point is though that somebody else could have maybe done that better (laughs) i I think kardashian is ross is not supposed to do that right that's like that's like like a, a surgeon during the middle of surgery realizing maybe I shouldn't take this guy's liver out. <laughs> like, no, we are supposed to be more clinical and say, and I noticed this in my own thinking, you know, the first time I watched the OJ Simpson trial going on live, I would think to myself, oh, you know, oh my gosh, it seems like he did it. This is bad. And now I have such a different view that, wait, it doesn't matter. The law is not about truth. Mm -hmm. It's about what you can prove. Mm -hmm. And if the city of Los Angeles wants to have Mark Furman, even if you took his racist tendencies out of him, he's admitting that he's set up criminals that, you know, that he's framed people. 
If you want to have that type of investigator in your city government, well, you're going to lose murder investigations. Right, right. And of course, we, we saw that in the jury deliberations when they, when they said, you know, I think he did it, but did they prove it? And that was the thing that ended up turning the uh, juror known as the demon to the not guilty side so quickly. And that goes back also to that Lieutenant General Flynn. Mm-hmm. Like, just because you think that happened, it's a whole different thing to prove it in a court of law. Right. Well, one of the most brilliant things I think about the way this story was told. And I'm curious to know if anybody uh, agrees with me. So, Toby, I'm going to start with you. You wrote your list of all of the episodes of Serial Season 1 and Serial Season 2. I look at your list of Serial Season 1, and it's like background, alibi tests, Hey and Anand's history, discovery of body, examine state's timeline, you know, like touchstones in the case. Talk about touchstones in a case. This series, every episode was a memorable touchstone. There was the Marsh's hair episode. There was the glove don't fit episode. There was the Bronco Chase episode. Do you think that was an effective way to frame the story? Because so much else happened. But to me, it just made me think like, oh, this is the one where we're going to see this. And I thought it was brilliant. And I'm curious to know what you thought of of the way that it was structured as a narrative. No, I, I thought it was obviously really well done. You know, it did the tricky thing of keeping the narrative going while at different times focusing on different people and giving you a better sense of them or what certain dynamics were. Like a lot of things that seem like really smooth and and fluid, I think a lot of work went into getting that exactly right. And and I think they did. I mean, there's very little about the storytelling that I think was off just as far as the writing and the pacing and the plotting. You know, I'm sure people will take issue with – you know, the way they fudge with this fact or that. But, um, I, you know, I thought it was really well done. Laura, did you have a favorite standout episode of the season for you? You know, I loved the juror episode. I loved the use of the music in the juror episode. But I also really loved the episode where we were really honing in on Marsha Clark mm-hmm. um, because that really put her in a different light for me. And then for the remainder of the series made me much more sympathetic to her and what she was going through and, and sort of rooting for her as she was going along. Kevin, what about you? Is there a standout episode for you, a single standalone episode? I liked episode nine when we were just talking about, I think there were some really great sort of chunks. I mean, the, I think like the first 15 minutes of episode one was so riveting. You forgot like how dramatic this homicide was. And how bloody. How bloody it was. Because by the time you get to the end and the verdict, you kind of forget all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think, you know, it, this is... Is very much like cereal. This was, I'm going to say it's modeled after cereal, but what makes a good season of cereal work is what made the People versus O.J. Simpson work in the same way. It was sort of each time we're going to look at a, a little theme on a, a larger narrative arc, but you don't lose the momentum of the whole arc while you're doing it. I thought that to use our memories as the framework for each episode was amazing because it really was. Every episode was framed around something you remembered. Even if you forgot a bunch of the little details, you remembered Marsha's hair. And speaking of which, I just want to play a quick, very quick listener voice memo that we received that asked about one of those memories. Let's just take a listen to her question. Hey guys, it's Courtney from Oregon and you all got me hooked on American Crime Story. I was about 12 when all that happened and could not have cared less about O.J. Simpson at the time. So my question is, how accurate is all the press craziness that they're showing on the TV show? Was the story really that important nationally where people are watching it all day long on TV and networks are bumping other programs in order to cover it? Did everybody really hate Marsha that much or was it just an important story in the L.A. area? What's the deal? 
Holy shit. Was it a big story? <laughs> yeah, it was a big story. Does anybody remember? Was it all three networks? I think it was. I, I can tell you, I very clearly remember the uh, white Bronco chase because it was during the NBA finals yep. and they shrank the game into like this little like one tenth of the television thing. I'm like, it's on every other fucking channel. Can we just watch the hoops on this channel? And like everybody who wants to watch basketball can watch this channel. And then you have your choice of 15 channels if you want to watch the Bronco. Yeah, I was in radio and I do remember breaking into, it was afternoon here, about OJ hadn't turned himself in. And then there was the Bronco chase. And just remember every day on the TV that the the trial was on and this was all morning program all the whole trial from gavel to gavel which actually I'm, I think um, in California I think that's a, a mistake there I don't think in California the judges actually have gavels I don't know I think that's a dumb detail that to okay. harp on with the brilliance of the series that the series yeah. was the question is was this but yeah yes. this was really and there that literally big. was a live episode of Oprah where everyone in the audience was holding hands waiting for the verdict that is what happened and you she might be too young also to remember how big important Oprah was <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was a very, 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 very big deal. So I'm curious to know, you know, I think that this story did uh, delve into many aspects of things that we, you know, remember about the case, things that we didn't remember. I'm curious, for any of you, is there some aspect of the story that you wish the series had delved into? Why, Rick, I'm going to start with you on that. Again, I binge watched it so much that I, I don't get the individual episodes, but I think they did a great job of covering it. I mean, I was going to Southern Cal. I was in L.A. the the time. I took a date to Mezzaluna after after that. Wow. Um, How romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me again about how this is all non-criminal stalking. (laughs) Right. This is where the guy worked. And, um, I mean, Marsha Clark's, honestly, that one of the best parts was when the reporter says, what is that, Rick James? I mean, like, her hairstyle was covered. I used to listen to uh, KFI AM, and they just did every show was about O.J., and it was all consuming. So I think they did a great job in, uh, what was it, 10 episodes of covering all of that. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that I was assigned the homework of watching it. Uh, Toby, do you think that the story was missing anything? I was actually talking to my wife about this last night. Uh, Nicole Brown Simpson's sister, it seemed like she was all over the place. I wasn't even really that focused on the trial, but it seemed like she was everywhere. And she looked exactly like her, except with dark hair. She was like a non-entity. Yeah, there's a small this. scene of her testimony, and that was it. And you're right, Denise Brown was a huge character in the real case. And uh, You know, it was it was her and it was uh, Fred mm-hmm. Goldman, right? Yep. And then the other thing that kind of struck me, and again, maybe my memory's wrong about this, but I remember Lance Ito really being under a ton of pressure and people really being dissatisfied with the job he was doing and Al D'Amato, like, doing the fake Chinese accent mm-hmm. on uh, Imus. And getting into trouble for that. And he was like, you know, he was a, a subject of ridicule. And I mean, I, I felt like the pressure that was on him and the negative sort of media stuff that was directed towards him, which seemed like a big deal to me, at least at the time, that just didn't seem to be covered at all. Laura, yeah. did you think anything was missing in The People versus O.J. Simpson in terms of the storytelling? No, I think the storytelling, I think it all flowed and it, it really was very compelling. I mean, I think, the, you know, the only thing is there wasn't a lot from the victims' families, but I don't think that the way that this was told, that that was really the focus of the series. So I think it still worked. Laura, I'm also curious, what did you think of the finale? What did you think of the way the series ended, in particular, the last couple of scenes in terms of capping off 
the series as a whole. It made me really stop and pause to think about, you know, there really wasn't somebody that, you know, if you're thinking about kind of, you know, traditional sort of story arc where you, you know, have a protagonist that in the end is going to sort of succeed at their quest. I felt like nobody really won at the end, but I felt like the way that it was portrayed was very compelling. I mean, you had the scene, the scene that really stuck with me, and I'm sorry, I just have to call him Ross from Friends because that's all I can see when I look at him. It's Um, SpongeBob. SpongeBob. (laughs) But that scene where he runs out of the courtroom and he runs in the bathroom and he throws up and then he runs in the hallway and he has this look with Marsha Clark. To me, that scene was very telling. And then the scene with OJ where he's having that party at his house and he's thinking, you know, I'm going to be the man and he's not the man anymore. And I think that was also I mean, it it sort of left me thinking there really were no winners in this case and that everybody that was connected to this case in some way, this became sort of the defining case in their careers. But nobody really came out of it unscathed. They all had baggage as a result of this case. But I think the finale really left me sort of like feeling, you know, very sad for everybody that was involved. There was really sort of like the OJ case curse with the exception of like Barry Sheck and Alan Dershowitz. Like who yeah. else had a happy ending of all of the of the dream team or the prosecution? You know, both Chris Darden and Marsha Clark left prosecution. Everybody else in the dream team died. Well, there's still... Evely Bailey was disbarred, died. Uh, you know, it's like, but yeah. Billy Cochran had a good career after he did. I mean, he did. He Didn't did he have, have a cancer, brain tumor. Yeah, he did. He did have a brain tumor though, and that's not. Robert good. Shapiro is doing LegalZoom.com. I mean, that's probably <laughs> fate worse than death, right? What about you, Kevin? What did you did think? Not of the- say that they're a big podcast sponsor. <laughs> oh, they are. <laughs> not of this one. Shit. We'll have to LegalZoom. Do- you're great. We'll have to change our minds when they uh, decide to sponsor our podcast. Kevin, what did you think of the finale and the way that the end of the series was framed? I liked it. I didn't think the final scenes were going to be about OJ, which is silly because. Because, I mean, really, that is where the story ends. So we had Robert Kardashian, who was the one who had, you know, the only one who sort of like traveled the whole way with a change of emotion, change of view. And when OJ gets home and he's surprised, he's a, an outcast. There's a scene where he looks at himself in the mirror after taking the shower. And then after the party, when he realized that they're not going to have his regular table for him at and the restaurant. And there's no one at the party that he knows. No one at the party that he knows. He goes out and back and he looks at that damn statue. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. And he said, you know, that statue is there. That's your old life. That is a monument to somebody else that you are no longer. Somebody that he really never was, maybe, I don't think. Maybe, yeah. Well, on the football, it's him in playing football. Right. You know, people will still, you know, maybe with a sound of an asterisk in their voice. But when they talk about great running backs, they do talk about O.J. Simpson because on the field, sure, like Darden said, he's a hell of a football player, but he's still a murderer. And off the field, he was a hell of a spousal abuser, apparently. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. And I do think that it was poignant. I do think that ending with him, though, for me, I felt, as Toby would say, I wasn't I didn't know how to feel about it because... It started with him. I really, at one point in the series, felt like I was rooting for the dream team because they were doing, they were so, like, great. And, like, everything was coming together. And then that all that changes sort of in the middle. And then you're rooting for, you know, Marsha and Chris. And the show did an unbelievable job keeping me in the edge of my seat, even though I knew what the outcome was going to be. American Crime Story presumably is coming back and for another season next season about a whole new true crime, American Crime Story story. Wyrick, do you have any hopes or dreams of what that next story will be? Oh, I don't know. But if it's as well done as, as this, I mean, I'd like to see the Menendez trial, but I'm kind of L.A. centric. But 
they do such a great job. Like like you've all said, it, it was a very compelling series. Well, the good news is for you is that NBC is developing a Law and Order series, which apparently is around the Menendez trial. That news came out. I like out. to call them the Menendez. The Menendez. <laughs> the, you mean the cute one and the creepy one, as my sisters and I used to call him? <laughs> yeah, call there them. was a girl that lived right next to me at, at USC that dated one of the Menendez brothers. Oh, lucky her, lucky her. What about While you, Toby? he was in jail. Oh, what, what about you, Toby? What story would you like to see unpacked by this team of writers and producers? I don't know. You know, if it's going to be the same, sort of the same model as this one, it has to be one that has both sort of drama in the actual crime and then also like something beyond the normal courtroom drama. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that was kind of what drove this was that both the prosecution and the defense had drama within them as well as competing. So I, I don't know. I mean, I thought one of the things about the final episode of OJ that kind of struck me, it seemed like where Marsha Clark was really sort of defending this case and this one thing that happened and sort of the facts of that and the evidence. And you had Johnny Cochran. He was putting the whole system on trial, right? Yep. And that was that was the way he was going to get OJ off. I mean, my sense is, and I don't know if this was real, but my sense from the from the show is that, you know, whether OJ was found guilty or not guilty was not as important for him as whether the whole attitude of the L.A. police and maybe police in general towards African-Americans was exposed. He shifted the American conversation. Right. So, I, I you know, I think in the end, you know, you could tell, you, you know, you just have to get O.J. off. He does <clears> say <throat> when, uh, yeah, well, you missed out when she was talking about the happy ending, Kevin, so I thought it was over. Crazy. You know, Bill Clinton's talking about it, yeah. and he's like, that's the win. Well, Laura, is there a story that you would like to hear that see this team? I mean, I think it would be hard for them to do another trial because this was the trial of the century. But is there another crime story that you think that this show would do a particularly good job telling? I think it's going to be a real high profile case. The case that kind of came to mind, I'm thinking about the case that Drew Peterson, that was the police officer out in, I want to say, Illinois, mm-hmm. who hadn't killed just one wife, but maybe two or yep. there might have been three. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a case with somebody that's, uh, you know, I think would be a very compelling character, and I think that would be interesting to see. I oh. just thought of it. Go ahead. My answer is the Lindbergh baby. Oh. The original crime of the century. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That would be good, and that would be a period drama, too. Yeah. What about oh. you, Kevin? Uh, the one I want to see next is none. I don't want to see American Crime Story Season 2. I want... <sighs> no, no, no. Hear me out. I, this was a miniseries in and of itself, stop it, it's that. Now, if a year from now they said, we'd like to do another miniseries, it's a different... That's what he's going to do. No, 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 I don't even want... The implication is that it's it's serial season two, it's mm-hmm. true detective season two. It is never going to hold up to this. I cannot imagine it holding up to this. I think they just say, we're going to do another thing, not we're going to do season two of American Crime Story. I will tell you, though, Ryan Murphy, who is the person I behind know, the series. I know, Ryan Murphy. I know, and, and, you, and also, Project. by the way, you thought that Glee should only be one season, and I agree with you. Glee should have been one season. But American Horror Story, which I'm too scared to watch, I hear each standalone season has been great. So I think that if anyone can do it, you can probably fiction. pull it off. I don't, I don't know what story you could tell that is this depth, this, I don't know. this important. I, so I'd I, say no. What is a glee? Oh, gl- What is a glee? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like, I'm, I was too busy being in the Marines to watch. I was too busy being a man to watch, watch. glee. Yeah. <laughs> he, he had a thing. It was called a penis. 
Uh, yeah, they're going to do a restore. I mean, if they want to do the Sheila Labar story, I'm willing to negotiate <laughs> for your book, the film rights. Yeah. Well, I have heard rumors that CBS is developing a series around this case, but the one that I would really want to see is the Jean Benet Ramsey case because oh. both of the parents are dead. I think there's a lot more you could do there in terms of trying to flesh out their stories without getting into legal trouble. But also, there's a lot about that case that again put a part of America on the table that we, we saw a part of America that we didn't know anything about. There's a whole reason why a show like Toddlers and Tiaras is on the air now. It goes back to the Jean Benet Ramsey case. It brought up an entire conversation about sort of the sexualizing of girls. And it's a mystery that has never been solved. And there are like three suspects. I think it's a very interesting story and it would be a good case. All right. So real quick, I don't think we even need to say why because we've just all waxed poetic about this series for the last half hour or so. I'm just going to go around the table. Let's give American Crime Story, Weevil versus O.J. Simpson, a letter grade. What grade do you give it, Kevin? I'm giving it an A. It would get an A plus if except for those scenes where Marsha Clark's smoking and watching television <laughs> and saying things like, I'm going to get him. No, I'm just fooling. It's an A+. Plus. <laughs> what about you, Wyrick? A+, plus, 9.8475. It was fantastic. <laughs> what about you, Toby? Yeah, I'd give it an A. Nice. Not an A+, plus, though. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be too with I, the Yeah, crowd. I don't, yeah. You're really, you're saving those A-pluses for something special, right? Yeah. Is it the best one I've ever seen? No, but it was really good. As good as beach volleyball. Well... <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Laura? What, what, grade, what grade do you give American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, as a season? I'm going to go with A-. minus. All right. Why? I thought I wasn't going uh, to justify this. For an A-, minus, uh, you have to justify that. Go well, ahead. Well, you know, I, I liked most of it, but then I, I can't get over Ross from Friends. I can't get over John Travolta and his, his like Kevin said, he just creeped me out. So some of the casting was a little bit off, but I, I really enjoyed the series. All right. I'm also going to go with an A, not because I'm a contrarian, but because, I don't know, I think that A-pluses should be reserved for something real special. And this was really special. I thought really it was special. real special. Yeah, I know. I, kind of, I know. I'm going to give it an A-plus, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Now, let's move on to my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Game of, of the, the Week. week. I love this story. Last week, there was a murder on 9th Street in Selins Grove, Pennsylvania. The story was broken by reporter Hildy Kate Lysiak, who had an exclusive story and comprehensive coverage in the print edition of her paper, The Orange Street News, as well as the online edition, scooping several competing publications. It should be noted that Hildy is nine years old and in third grade. And for the past year, her online and print news investigations have captured the attention of her town. Here are some of the headlines on the site of the Orange Street News right now. Skunk shot dead in Grove, possibly rabid. <laughs> Father banned from son's preschool graduation. From preschool graduation? Yes. Vandal strikes again on eve of chocolate fest. Hero. <laughs> Hero. No, not chocolate fest. Hero dog thwarts intruder. Porn hacker on loose in Grove. College on is, the loose? Yes. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you're going too fast. Slow down. <laughs> I'm telling do you. you have, do you have more details just on that one? Go to our website, crimewriterson.com. On the post for this episode, I have posted a link to the Orange Street News. It is a must-read news publication. Now, Hildy is urged on by her dad. She's a former Daily News reporter. But after the murder investigation, which was real, she went to the scene. She interviewed cops. She got confirmation. And she ran the story. Murder on 
on 9th Street with several exclamation points in the headline. <laughs> and it turned out to be completely accurate because she does all of her shoe leather due diligence as a reporter. But she got a lot of criticism because she was a third grader covering this homicide. And her dad is a former Daily News reporter. So she took to social media to respond to her critics who say that she should be, and I quote, playing with dolls or having tea parties instead of being a real reporter. So my question for each of you is this. Wyrick, I'm going to begin with you. Would you let your nine-year-old goddaughter, because I know you have goddaughters, would you let your nine-year-old goddaughter cover a murder as a reporter? I'm not sure about a murder, but with all of the rest of it, yes. But that's tough with a murder at that age. What about you, Toby? Would you let your tenacious daughter, who I know is now 10, when she was nine, would you have allowed her to cover a murder in her, for her local publication? There's no way in hell I would let her cover a murder. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rest of the stuff, yeah. I, I mean, Porn I, hackers, I okay, with Toby, but... Yeah, porn hackers, those are a dime a dozen, <laughs> the ones that are loose. But, you know, a yeah. murder, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, one of which is it's a little bit young to be exposed to that kind of stuff. And then also, I think regardless of how sort of dogged and serious this nine-year-old girl is, I think there is a certain amount of a perception of lessening the seriousness around what's a tragedy to have this little girl reporting on it. So I think for those two reasons, I hate to question other people's parenting, but I, I don't know what that dad is thinking, quite honestly. What about you, Laura? What do you think of this nine-year-old girl covering news as it happens in her community and just reporting the truth? Well, I'm kind of conflicted. So I don't know. Some of you know, I'm actually the advisor to the third grade newspaper at my son's school. Mm. Um, experience. <laughs> you know, and it's great because the kids have a passion for it. But their stories, it's very funny. They've done an investigation into the principal and discovered that he goes by his middle name instead of his first name. And, dun, dun, um, dun. and they're very funny. They said he spilled the beans on his real name. <laughs> <laughs> and they use exclamation points? Um, no explanation points on that one. But, you know, it, it's hard. I will say I have taken my son out with me on a assignments when I've gone out to do newspaper assignments. But, you know, we had a really bad car accident in front of our house before Christmas. And it was awful, like wires over the car and the person was still in the car. And of course, I ran out with my camera and told my son to sit in the car. And of course, he followed me. And I, I felt badly about that. But I think it really depends on the child. I wouldn't let my nine-year-old because I think that he would become too worried about something like this. But it sounds like this little girl has sort of maybe a little bit of a different take on things. She seems a little bit more mature than the average nine-year-old. So I think it, you have to kind of look at it as a case-by-case -case basis. I agree with you, Laura. I think that she is motivated by getting the news out there. And I think she saw all the police action and she went down and asked what was going on. And I think she found out what was going on. And at that point... She thought it was her responsibility to report what was going on. And I don't think I would send my nine-year-old to cover a murder, but I would certainly, I think, let her do it if it was true and she was able to verify it and she was on the scene first. What about you, Kevin? She'd been doing it for a year, yeah. the, uh, you know, on, on all this other stuff. The Orange Street News is an awesome publication. You missed one of these headlines. It says, Vandal's Steel Wagon, $50 cash reward, <laughs> followed by... Breaking wagon turned in. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of there's a lot of exclusive um... exclusive exclamation point. And she promises, I will stay on this investigation. And you know what? It is exclusive because nobody else in her community well, is covering these stories. That's part of it is that there are news deserts 
in many areas where the reason she was able to scoop the traditional newspapers is because they didn't have anybody in that area covering it. And one of the responses to her critics who says that she should be playing with dolls is like, well, you get up and do something on the computer. You do something about the news. Now, would I let my nine-year-old daughter cover? I don't know. My daughter just happens to be here. Lily, come here. I'm dragging her over. What about ISIS? Did she cover ISIS? (laughs) Oh, God. Oh. So if I said, do you want to go cover uh, a murder? Would it? Would you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but you're not not. What about when you were nine, would you have done it then? Well, you dedicated a murder book to me when I That's was nine. True. So That's true. I'm pretty not much of a stretch. So am I a bad parent for that? No. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you live in a in a house where mom and dad are like writing true crime stuff, and you know there's like autopsy photos hanging around. And, Wait, what? Yeah, so we got to wrap this up because I have to take Lily to her therapist now. <laughs> we have to call DCYF quick. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we probably should end it on that note. So, uh, Laura Bricker, if you are on the Twitter, how can our listeners find you there, interact with you, get your great recipes? It is at Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A. And Toby Ball, if our listeners want to find you on Twitter and berate you for being a naysayer over a nine-year-old's ambitions to cover the news, <laughs> how can they find you there? If they want more parenting tips, they can go to <laughs> at Toby Ball N-H. And Wyrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before I ask about your Twitter handle, I understand we are posting, you have a Netflix recommendation list, right? And we are posting that on our website. Can you just tell us a little bit about your Netflix list? Yes. First of all, I do have to correct Kevin on something. All right. I, only, I only have to do this because my fellow Marines would be very upset. All right. Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from Full Metal Jacket <laughs> is all, It's not Lee Emery. Gunnery Sergeant R. Lee Ermy. And if you got his name wrong, he would have said, I will pee to you until your asshole is sucking buttermilk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for the correction of my correction. Yeah. So it wasn't Lee Remick? Is that what we're... It was not not Lee Remick. (laughs) Yeah, this is Wyrick's Netflix list. Number one, Bronson. It is... uh, Tom Hardy is playing the most notorious prison inmate in England. It's fantastic. The only caution I'll give you, when he fights guards, he's always nude. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a Swipe left. You know what? I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to post your whole Netflix recommendation list on our website so our listeners can see it all and get the links to everything you're talking about. So send it to me. So how about you give us your Twitter handle so our listeners can find you and you can shoot your other recommendations their way. It is James W. Wyrick, W-E-I-R-I-C-K. And you can also find me at Task and Purpose Radio. How about you, Kevin? How can our listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, I am on Twitter, and I also respond to all my tweets in the nude. (laughs) (laughs) I am at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet, or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use that Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes for us. It helps new listeners find out all about us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Control Room 5 at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers and Wyrick, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. I have an idea. All right, okay. you're rolling? Yeah. I want to give a big shout. You're sh- not rolling. I am rolling. It's literally rolling. I'm watching it right oh, now. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. It so- looks moves slowly. It's a big view. Mm. Okay. 
Uh, hold on, I'll be right back. Wait, it's like Limetown over at Toby's. Like, you can hear... <laughs> he didn't mute his mic before he walked away. <laughs> it's like a Limetown. Yeah. Lime we're going to hear the doors open and he closing. Oh, wait, wait. Here he comes. Wait, now should somebody take a drink? No, if it's at Limetown, it'll be like... <sighs> I'm smoking. <laughs> oh, thank you. Won't you have a seat, Mr. Uh, Ball? A seat? <laughs> a seat? Oh, wait, no. That's, 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 that's black taste. That's black taste, yeah. <clears throat> so if we're going with these nicknames, is this when Toby's going to start to call me Brixie? <laughs> that's right. Do you want to start calling him Ball? We all need nicknames. Balls. Balls. Hey, Balls. <clears throat> Tobes. Rebecca and I love preparing amazing dinners at home, thanks to Plated. Visit Plated.com slash crime and choose from recipes designed for a wide range of tastes. You'll receive a hand-picked refrigerated box with fresh produce, everything to cook, an awesome dinner delivered straight to your door. Get a free dinner for two with your first delivery. That's Plated.com slash crime. Plated.com slash crime.